Welcome to the Practical Employment Law Podcast, a podcast covering all aspects of American employment law. I'm your host, Mark Chumley. It is time again for an update on the latest in labor and employment law developments. To remind you, updates are all based on recent cases that have been decided, new laws that have been passed, and general news from the world of labor and employment law. So let's jump right in. The first thing I want to talk about today is marijuana. As of July 1st, Virginia has joined the ranks of states legalizing marijuana. Now, the majority of states have decriminalized marijuana possession and legalized it on some level, if only for medicinal purposes. Recreational use is legal in 18 states, now including Virginia. The problem for employers with this is twofold. First, marijuana remains illegal under federal law by virtue of the Controlled Substances Act of 1970. In addition, state laws vary as to their specific terms and what they require of employers, creating a confusing patchwork of laws for employers operating in multiple states. By way of example, let's take a quick look at the new Virginia law. As noted, it legalizes both medical and recreational use of marijuana, and it also protects employees from discipline for medical use of cannabis oil. Now, that provision is somewhat unique. By contrast, Ohio has decriminalized marijuana, which means that criminal penalties for possession have been vastly reduced from prior levels, and has legalized medicinal use, but the law specifically allows employers to take action against employees who test positive, meaning that Ohio employers do not have to tolerate employees' legal use of marijuana and may freely take adverse action against them. Now, this is not the case in Virginia, where an employer may not take action against an employee who tests positive for marijuana and who has a prescription for cannabis oil. Now, let's note that this is pretty narrow. It does not cover recreational use or even all medicinal use, only prescribed cannabis oil. Nevertheless, be aware that several other states have some form of protection for employees who use medical marijuana. States with such protections include Arizona, Arkansas, Connecticut, Delaware, District of Columbia, Illinois, Maine, Minnesota, Nevada, New York, Oklahoma, Pennsylvania, and Rhode Island. So here are the takeaways. First, if you operate in a state that has legalized marijuana on any level, you need to be aware of where the lines are drawn and to what extent, if any, employees have protections. Also, don't forget that many states have so-called lawful conduct statutes that prohibit employers from taking adverse action for employees' lawful off-duty conduct. This may apply to marijuana use in some states. Now, on the bright side, no one is suggesting that employers need to tolerate employees coming to work impaired, and allowing that would obviously raise safety issues in many cases. In practice, I see employers going a couple of different directions. Some employers are very committed to a drug-free workplace and take the position that they are following federal law, which continues to view marijuana as illegal. Now, the risk is that these employers may face state law claims in at least some narrow circumstances. On the other side, many employers are now treating marijuana the same way they do alcohol, meaning they do not tolerate employees being impaired at work, but they don't typically test for it, at least not in the hiring process. And I'm aware of clients in manufacturing and retail who basically have taken the position that they couldn't staff their businesses if they took a hard line on marijuana. 
At the end of the day, businesses need to have a high-level discussion about what works for them in light of several factors, such as safety, culture, and simple practicality. Moving on, I saw a news story last weekend that's all too common. A boutique store in Michigan got into hot water in the media after commenting on an applicant's physical appearance. A recent college graduate had applied for a position at the boutique, and the VP of Operations, who was also the owner's husband, copied her on an email intended only for his wife, stating, quote, The girl is fresh out of college and not that cute. Are you sure you want me to interview her? End quote. Or words to that effect. Intense embarrassment and apologies have followed, as one would expect. Now, why do I bring this up? Well, unfortunately, the errant email with inappropriate comments remains an issue, and not just at small boutique businesses. I continue to see this type of thing, even at very large companies with robust training programs. There's not a lot to say, except that most email systems include an option to have a pop-up window to ask if you're sure you want to reply to everyone, and from an employment law standpoint, this feature should always be activated. Beyond that, in the workplace today, you simply should not comment on physical appearance of others. Ever. There may be rare circumstances, maybe you're a casting agent or a makeup artist, but for the majority of people, just don't do it. There is an interesting new case out of Kentucky on arbitration, Davis versus Panda Express. Now, the plaintiff in this case successfully challenged an arbitration agreement that she had signed when she started her employment. She was 16 years old when she started working at Panda Express, and she quit two years later at 18, claiming that she was constructively discharged. She filed a lawsuit claiming harassment and discrimination, and Panda Express moved to enforce the arbitration agreement she signed when she started working. The employee attacked the validity of the arbitration agreement on the grounds that under Kentucky law, a minor is permitted to disavow a contract entered into before reaching the age of majority, which is 18 years old in Kentucky. The court concluded that by filing the lawsuit, the employee had disaffirmed the agreement and could not be compelled to arbitrate her claims. The takeaway here is that employers who hire minor employees need to consider whether the agreements they are asking them to sign can be validly entered into by a minor. If not, employers may need to forego agreements for a time or consider changes to their onboarding process or agreements to address the issue. Next, let's consider the case of Doe v. City of Detroit, in which a transgender city employee raised claims of harassment. Shortly after the employee began transitioning, she learned that there were complaints about her failure to allegedly comply with the city's dress code. She also received some very unpleasant threatening notes and her office was defaced. She reported the issues to her supervisor and requested that her office be equipped with locks and a surveillance camera. An investigation was unable to identify the responsible party and after some delay a lock was installed. Later, more serious threatening notes came and the employee reported these incidents as well, and she also reported who she suspected was responsible. Another investigation was conducted, but again there, were no, there was no conclusive evidence against the co-worker, and when he later made disparaging comments about the employee on Facebook, he was disciplined with a three-day suspension and moved to a different floor. There were no further incidents after that. The employee filed suit alleging retaliation with the focus of the case being allegations that the city had not adequately responded to the complaints. Now, the court in this case disagreed and noted that the employee's dissatisfaction with the results of the investigation were not alone sufficient to establish that it was inadequate. 
While the city's reaction to the issues was not immediate, it was sufficiently prompt and thorough to make a reasonable response. The takeaway here is that employers should always react promptly and thoroughly to complaints, at least as promptly and thoroughly as possible, but the fact that the complaining party is not satisfied with the response is not necessarily evidence of wrongdoing. Now, I've encountered a lot of situations over the years where employers do a thorough investigation but can't reach a definitive conclusion. Sometimes that happens. The key is making sure that the underlying issues stop, and that happened here, so the failure to come to a more decisive conclusion did not work against the employer. Finally, a recent First Circuit case was decided in favor of a discharged employee who brought an age discrimination claim. The employee's supervisor told him that he was selected for a reduction in force because, quote, the company wanted to rejuvenate the team and cut costs, end quote. He was replaced by younger employees. Now, this was a rare direct evidence case, and what the court really focused on was the word rejuvenate. Now, the point I want to make about this is that employers need to be very careful about the words they use when discussing termination decisions. This is particularly so with potential age claims, where some of the troublesome language is not as obvious as it might be with other protected classes. Managers need to avoid any language that might imply ageist animus. Obviously, rejuvenate the team is in this category. I can't give you a comprehensive list of every ageist statement that courts have uh, found, but I can give you some examples, and here are a few. Statements related to energy levels or energetic employees are problematic. Seeking someone who is a cultural fit can be an issue, especially if the company in question characterizes itself as new, young, growing, or something similar. Seeking a, quote, digital native, end quote, which essentially refers to someone who grew up in the digital age, is surprisingly common and very problematic. Finally, the EEOC takes issue with job postings seeking recent college graduates or listing a specific range of experience, like three to five years. The EEOC takes the position that employers can list an open-ended minimum experience level, like minimum three years experience, but restricting it to a top-end level, such as three to five years of experience, can amount to age discrimination. This has been the Practical Employment Law Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please watch for future episodes wherever you get podcasts. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review. If you would like to contact me about any aspect of the podcast, my email address is mchumley at kmklaw.com and my full contact information is in the show notes. This podcast was created for general informational purposes only and does not constitute legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. Although we attempt to ensure that the podcast is complete, accurate, and up-to-date, we assume no responsibility for its completeness, accuracy, or timeliness. The information in this podcast is not intended to create, and listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon this information without seeking professional advice.